now listening to Grace City Portland. Uh, guys, if you brought a Bible, please grab it, open it to the book of Exodus. We are going to be continuing the series that we started a few weeks ago entitled, Are We There Yet? And the idea is very simple. Um, our, our, our sketch that we've been working through is that God has delivered us. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, if you know him as your savior, savior and king, then something happens fundamentally. You become an adopted member of the family of God. That's, that's a, your status changes. You become a new creature, is the way the Apostle Paul describes it. A new creature in Christ Jesus. You are delivered. You are set free. You are saved. And there's a, there's a hundred amazing metaphors for it in the scriptures. Once you're delivered, though, you begin to realize it's only the beginning of this lifelong journey of daily following Jesus taking up your cross, learning to die to yourself, and loving others like him. Um, and that's, that's this epic journey full of ups and downs and tensions and struggles and, and blessings and challenges and et cetera, et cetera, before we finally cross over and, and join Jesus in our heavenly home, in the place that he's gone to prepare for us. And this journey can feel like, my goodness, when will this road trip end? Are we there yet? And along the way, how do we, how do we live in that tension in a way that's, that maximizes the whole process such that we become who God has called us to be, his children, his disciples, those who follow Jesus with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? That's what we've been talking about. So, this morning we are going to be looking at Exodus chapter 17, and um, yeah, let's just jump right into it, and I think you'll see where we're going. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water. This is the second time we're told that God's people, they're out in the desert, they're wandering around, they're, they're being led. And they're thirsty. The people were thirsty there in the desert. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with, with this, with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, Taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. The staff that God used to deliver them from Egypt. Verse 6, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders in Israel, and he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah which are words meaning because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Verse 8. Then, we're shifting gears, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, 
Choose for us men and go out and fight with the Melek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and when he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone, they put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with the Malik from generation to generation. Now, you might be thinking, did we just not read like two stories kind of back to back? Uh, yes, we did. And there's, there's very much a reason for that because these stories have a lot to do with each other. This morning, I want to talk to you about four things. Violence in the Old Testament, generational drama, uh, doubt, and the secret battle plan. That's what we're talking about this morning. Yeah, this will be a two-hour sermon. Um, in way of... The first one actually could easily be a two-hour or a two-month teaching series. There is so much that could and probably should be said about violence in the Old Testament. What do we do with the God who's declared as love in the New Testament, who is like constantly sending his people into battle in the Old Testament. And, and you, you've probably thought about this. This is perhaps a conundrum that has like crossed your mind. Like, how do you reconcile this? Is there a, tension? Is there a problem there? Um, and what do we do with that? Um, I'm just going to say a couple of things because I, I, it would be unfortunate just to ignore the tension. Um, violence in the Old Testament, first of all, we need to understand, at least in this particular instance, for sure, this is not a prescription for how God's people, Christians, are to act ethically in our world, but it is certainly a description of something that did happen in the world. It's not a prescription for Christian ethics in the 21st century, but rather a description of a greater reality, one that finds its clear, fuller, and eternal expression in the kingdom of heaven, whereby the true enemies of God, which are spiritual in nature, are fought and defeated by a king who rescues his people from evil by dying them. It's not a prescription, it's a description of a greater, more eternal, spiritual reality that we are in fact called to live in and engage with. The point being for us is number one, two things. Number one, military battle between the Amalekites and the wandering group of freed, uh, half-starved Hebrew families that we're reading about 
has a unique historical context. This is, this is, this is something that, that happened under extreme, unique circumstances. God was doing something that I would argue was never ever repeated again in the history of people groups in the world. Okay, this is God doing something utterly unique. Has a unique historical context, one that must be taken seriously if we are to properly understand the character of God and his command to love our enemies. Which means, number two, this story is not given to us as a means of justifying religious violence, but rather as a reminder of a deeper spiritual conflict, like a shadow that points to a more substantial reality, to use the words of Paul to the Colossians. When we're reading about violence in the Old Testament, primarily, we need to be understanding it through the lens of the shadow that points to a greater substance. That God did something utterly unique, shocking, troublesome, um, awesome, amazing, loving, protecting for his people who were attacked by this band of raiders that we need to understand as pointing us to a greater, deeper, eternal, substantial reality, a spiritual battle that we're called to wage. Um, Ephesians 6.12, this is what the New Testament talks about on several occasions. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And 2 Corinthians 10.4 admonishes us in saying, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, that does not solve the whole, you know, okay, but yeah. But it still happened, and we could, we could also go to some other places where even more happened. Um, and perhaps that's another sermon series. I was just talking with someone this morning. They're saying, hey, can I put in, I, I didn't know this was a thing, but someone was putting in a, a sermon request kind of cool (laughs) taking requests Uh, can we preach through all of the most difficult passages in the bible would you guys be keen to like if we did like a teaching my wife is saying like no don't do that why would we do that (laughs) what if we just we just went through old testament to like the end of revelation all of the like like what is the deal with like being baptized for the dead like what like, that's, that's like this little, like, reference, like, Paul alludes to. Why are you giving me this? I think it'd be fun. Move on. Okay, fine. For the sake of today, for the sake of what I really want to emphasize to us, which I think is, is relevant for our, our church family here, I want us to just understand violence in that context. Okay, as followers of Jesus who have been commanded to love our enemies 
and to overcome evil by doing good, by blessing those who persecute us. Okay, this is our responsibility as followers of Jesus. This is the lens we need to be interpreting something like this through, primarily speaking. Okay? Um, that's my first point. That's violence. Number two, generational drama. Um, your greatest battles, spiritually speaking, and not, when I say spiritual, I'm not just talking about like, uh, like church stuff. I'm talking about like the, the forces behind the visible. I'm talking about in your family, in, in your relationships, in this world we live in where there's conflict and injustice, where there's racism and poverty and greed. And these things, they all, these are all symptomatic of spiritual realities. And the way we overcome these things isn't by attacking people. I would argue it's not even merely by passing legislation. Primarily, God's people are called to be people of prayer. Now, we live out our prayers, and we put to action our faith, but our fight is a spiritual fight. We are called to be a people of prayer, and then we live that out. Your greatest battle, then, will be generational. Amalek, this guy that we just read about, the leader of the Malachites, this tribe, this ancient tribe, you know who he was? If you just flip back a few pages, he was the grandson of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the grandson of Abraham. This dude's in the family. This fight that we've just read about started a few generations ago. And now God's people, X number of centuries later, find themselves picking up where their forefather had left off. Amalekite is family. This battle is of a generational nature. Your greatest battles, I would argue, are inherited battles. It's the battles that you didn't sign up for. It's the battles that you, in large part, I would say some of the, our greatest struggles in life, the greatest conflicts are, are due to situations that began like long before we even had the ability to make like actual choices. Like the family you were born into. Like the dysfunctional situation that you just found yourself in. Like, I didn't pick this. Now, to be fair, I believe we're all culpable to varying degrees. You know, I'm a sinner just as much as you are, and I make my choices, and I make bad ones, and I make a couple good ones along the way as well. But I find myself, the older I get, realizing that my greatest battles, they started long before I even started making some of my worst choices. Battles that started like generations ago. Things in my, my bloodline, stuff to do with my family, brokenness and, and ways of thinking that started a long, long time ago. So our greatest battles are inherited, but our greatest victories have the potential to impact generations to come. Here's the good news. You may be born into all sorts of junk, Fine, welcome to life. 
you and I have the opportunity to affect that in reverse order. The battles we might find ourselves in are setups for victories that will affect generations to come. Which is exactly what's happening in the story. They're being attacked because of something started a long time ago, but their victory is going to impact many, 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 us included, generations to come. It's interesting in verse 14, it says, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Specifically Joshua, this one young man who we'll find out later becomes a a significant leader in this, this journey that God's people are on. Not and make a speech to the whole crowd so that everyone remembers this guy, Joshua. He needs to remember that this battle that God won on his behalf is going to matter because there's other battles to come. And I want us to know, I want you to know, that some of the fights you're fighting right now, you need to remember for later on in life. I was just having a conversation with my brother this morning, and he was telling me how like, he wants to begin to interact with the people in his life now. He wants to begin to carry himself in a certain way so that when he has sons and daughters of his own someday, they'll respect him for the man that he, they've always seen him to be and has become. He's thinking generationally. He's not thinking of how do I survive this? How do I get over this little hurdle? How do I sort of overcome this little challenge in my little private world, my little bubble of life? He's thinking, I have to win this fight. I have to overcome. I need to see this generational drama stop with me because of the generations to come. My children and grandchildren and people who I'll never even meet because I'll be dead and in the ground will be affected by my determination to stand and overcome this battle, this situation in my life right now. Because I don't know what, what this means to you, if this encourages you, if, if you. I find that a lot of us, a lot of people, we, for whatever reason, and I've got theories, we don't think generationally so much. I mean, you hear people say stuff about, like, oh, it's all about the next generation, and that kind of, you know, that gets us excited. And I believe that. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Let's reach young people. Let's reach students. Let's, let's, let's take the gospel to the next generation. I don't know if we really know what that looks like half the time. It sounds great, but when it comes down to it, we're very individualized. And we tend to, to view our battles in life as like, this is like my little personal struggle, and I need to overcome this for me. I can remember um, when we had our first kid, my little boy Isaac, my nine-year-old, came into our world, and I had one of these little moments. I ended up throwing away a few DVDs. Remember, this was our little flat, a little one-bedroom flat in London, and uh, we had this big old honking TV. Remember, someone gave us a TV. We didn't have a TV. Um, It wasn't a big old flat screen. It was like a big old honker. It was big. (laughs) It was big. 
It's like one of these TVs you really don't want to be given. Um, and we had our little DVDs on there. And I, had a, I remember thinking, if my little boy could actually work the DVD player, how comfortable would I be with him popping in some of these DVDs? And this, this is a personal conviction, right? Don't go out and burn your DVDs. Do, do whatever you want. <laughs> but think generationally. And I threw away some of the DVDs. Now, you know how it is. You have a moment, you throw them away, and then like a month later, you're like, dang it. Like, I really liked that movie. <laughs> but it was important in that moment. God was teaching me to, to think there is a battle to be won here that's so beyond you. It started before you, and it goes beyond you. And we need to think generationally. Doubt. Now, the reason why I wanted to read these two stories together, um, the story about Moses hitting the rock and the water gushing out, that's, I mean, my goodness, I would love to just preach on that one as well. Seth Trimmer, the pastor of our ascending church in Corvallis, he, he preached on the water and the rock. In fact, I think he entitled it, like, The Rock. It's an awesome sermon. So you just, just go and listen to his sermon. There you go. Uh, But these two stories fit together because the story about them thirsting and the staff and Moses hitting the rock and the water gushing out ends with this, is God with us or not? Is God really with us or not? Then, Amalek comes. It says in verse 8, then Amalek came and fought Israel. These two stories are meant to be read in tandem. In the moment when God's people were wondering to themselves, is God really with us? How, long, how many days have we been in the desert now? What, like a month? I feel like we're going to die out here. Did Moses just drag us out here? Get us to move, uproot, change everything. What? So that we can die in the desert of thirst? I've got kids. Is God really even with us? And then Amalek came and fought with God's people. Guys, there's a a significant bit of wisdom here for us to consider if we're going to engage in the fight and maybe even land some punches in the spirit. The enemy comes in your moment of doubt. We live in, um, we live, I make these grossly generalized statements. We live in a day and age where it's become not only acceptable, but like um, honorable to be honest about like your doubt. It's this sort of like, being authentic kind of thing. Like, oh, you know, and, and, uh, and I love the, uh, what is it, Mark uh, chapter 9, verse 22. You guys, you guys will recognize this. This is the moment where Jesus, um, he's walking through one of the villages, and there's a father who has a son who's demon-possessed. And the father tracks down Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if you can, will you heal my son? Or rather, will you cast this demon out? And Jesus responds, um, 
the man says, if you, um, he says, you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't you love that? You've heard this, right? It's awesome. And it's like, it's an encouragement because it gives us permission to be honest about like, this is where I'm really at. Like, I want to believe, I want to want to believe, but I'm, just, I'm struggling with unbelief. And that's, that's a beautiful picture of honesty. Like, this is where I'm really at. But notice, he doesn't say, I believe, but not really. And then Jesus is impressed with how authentic he is. No, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm being honest, I'm being authentic, but Lord Jesus, help unbelief isn't cool. It's not authentic. It's not all right. It's dangerous, and it needs to be called what it is. And if you're struggling with unbelief, please be honest about it. Like, don't suppress it. Don't pretend like, oh, I'm just like a a tower of faith. I've never had a moment of doubt in my life. Like, don't do that. But don't embrace it as if it's like a badge of authenticity, Because when you're in that moment of doubt and you're questioning whether or not God even exists, much less is like with you and for you, that's when the enemy comes. He'll take that little thought, that feeling, and he'll leverage it. He'll latch onto it. He'll exploit it. He'll amplify it. And before you know it, because you simply just set that unbelief there, it's like, well, you know what? It is what it is. It's my feelings and I'm being authentic. Okay, great. Good starting point. Now let's attack that thing. Let's ask Jesus to help us overcome our unbelief because he is with us. God never left his people in the desert, and this is one of the great lessons that they had to learn. And later on, we'll find that 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 doubt that crops up in the very beginning becomes incredibly problematic later on. Doubt is natural, but something to be overcome, which is why we do need to talk about it, which is why we do need to create the kind of um, culture in our church community here where people feel like they're allowed to talk about it. And if I do happen to bring it up, I don't get like this little five-minute sermonette that you've prepared to make me feel like I'm an idiot because I struggle with doubt. No, I need you to just listen to me and then stand with me in prayer so that we can, we can overcome this thing together because the enemy, he whispers, uh, he lies, he attacks the mind, our thoughts. Although I would say the battle's not won merely on a cognitive level. We're commanded to take our thoughts captive, but we have to understand that it's not merely an exercise in forcing myself to think different. It's a spiritual battle. So we call unbelief what it is. We ask Jesus to help us overcome our unbelief, and we pray for each other in that way. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm 
in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. We're called to resist, stand firm together. I've got to share this story with you, um, and then we'll go on to the next point. I got a phone call this morning about an hour ago, and uh, one, of the, one of the brothers here in the church, I could probably say his name, I won't because I haven't asked for permission, but I'm, he probably wouldn't mind. But one of the brothers called me and said, hey, do you have a minute? I want to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, go for it. He said, I just want to let you know, I'm not going to be at church this morning. I have this, this other thing. just want to let you know that. I'm like, okay, cool. But I don't know if you've noticed, this is what he said to me, but I, I've not been super engaged. I've been a part of this church for, it's been several months now, and I just kind of, I'm not really there a lot, and, and I don't, I'm kind of engaged, but I'm not, and I'm, I'm, that didn't say anything, but I'm thinking, yeah, I've totally noticed that, like, go on. And he said, I just wanted to let you know that it's, it's something that I've been struggling with. It's not the church, I kind of thought it was, got over that. It's, it's totally me. It's just something that I've realized, like, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with all this stuff. And he, these were the words he said. I keep, every time I'm at church on a Sunday morning, I just feel overwhelmed with this feeling that I don't belong. Have you ever felt that? Like, ah, what am I really doing here? I don't really belong here. I think it's a natural feeling. I think it's a feeling that the enemy, that, that Satan, who prowls like a roaring light, he, oh, that's an emotion that he will exploit all day long. I think everyone's felt like, oh, I don't belong here. No one really knows me. No one gets me. Yeah, okay. Totally. I get that. The enemy will exploit that. That natural emotion of un- insecurity. And he said, I just, back to my phone call, he said, I want to let you know that this is what I've been struggling with. And I've determined to overcome it. I just, I just, I wanted to just put it out there. I wanted to confess it. I just wanted to let you know that this is how I've been feeling and I've made the decision that I'm going to overcome this because I, this, as far as I can tell, this is a decent church and this is where I'm at and, and I want to be a part of this thing. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be here. I'm going to engage. I'm just sitting there like, like, dude, you're going to make me cry. Like, <laughs> praise the Lord. That's how you overcome. You're honest, and you say, but by the grace of God, I'm going to overcome this thing, and I'm, I'm going to be a part of this family. I'm not only going to stay here, I'm going to get engaged like never before. Thank you. There you go. And hey, if this isn't like your, your home church, you familiar with that expression, home church? If this is, everyone needs a home church because church is meant to be like a, a picture of God's family, right? Um, and if you're just drifting around doing your little church thing, that, that's not family. That's, all that does is perpetuate um, the problem of superficiality that the church already struggles with big time. So you need a home church. And wherever that is for you, it may or may not be here. I mean, you know, you're, you're welcome to just visit. And, but wherever your home church is, if you know where that is, if you figure it out, be home. Be home. Be there. Get plugged in. And if you feel like you don't belong, tell someone. And then we will overcome together. The secret battle plan. 
Have you ever noticed, if you've ever read through any portion of the Old Testament in particular, there's a lot of battles that take place, and God seems to be like a terrible military strategist. His battle plans are like ridiculous, like ridiculous. He'll send his people like, okay, like there's this, this evil, oppressive, like military nation. And, and I'm going to use it. We, we, we got to go. Like it's, it's gone on long enough. I mean, we're talking like, I mean, could you imagine living in a society where it was normal and right and honorable to sacrifice your child as like a means of worship. Like these are the sorts of like nations that God's people were having to like confront and displace as God was, was doing something new to restore his, his good and ordered creation. And he says, right, but these guys are savage. I mean, they're, they're brutal. You know, they, this is, they're warmongers. These Hebrews that had been delivered out of Egypt, they were not warriors, they, they had lived this like four centuries of slaves. They've not been trained for combat. And now they're under attack. And what's God's battle plan? <laughs> okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. Get your staff, go up on the hill, and lift it up. Lift your hands up, and then as long as your hands are up, that's how the battle's going to be won. And I'd be like, uh, Really? Is that, that it? That's the, secret, that's the secret weapon? Hands lifted up in, in prayer, presumably? That's it. It's like Gideon when he's, he's called to, like, uh, to, to, to battle the Philistines in his generation. And he goes out and musters the troops. And he has a fairly decent-sized army that he's assembled. And God's like, right, let's whittle it down. Let's just, let's just, just shave off several thousand people. And then we'll just create this little band of like you know, fearful sort of warriors, as it were. And, that, and it's just like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Or how about this one? When you finally cross the Jordan and, and you go into the land that he had promised, God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here's how you're going to take down Jericho. I want you to just march around the city. That's it. Just march and blow your horns. Now, we could say all sorts of things about why God's obviously um, determined, it would seem, to make the point that the battle belongs to God. It says, be still and know that I am God. Truly, your battle is not against flesh and blood. If that were the case, go up to the mountain, I'll give you the Ten Commandments, and the schematics for an A-bomb. And that's just how we'll get this done. It's of a spiritual nature. It's of a spiritual nature. So what's the secret weapon? Now, okay, the secret weapon is Jesus. I'll just say that, okay? If we, if we just kind of continue this whole line of thinking, eventually we're going to get to Jesus. And he is the one who, who overcame the ultimate enemy of God. That is Satan, sin, and death. And he, he defeats them by laying down his life for us on a cross. But there's something else that I want to highlight. Moses, the leader, had been entrusted with the staff of God, the authority, the symbol of authority, but without Aaron and her, 
standing beside him, lifting his hands, when he started getting tired, they would have all lost the fight. It's interesting that God not only sends Moses up to the hill to, to wage warfare in a, in a slightly weird way, in my opinion, but he says, once you get up there, you will not be able to keep your hands lifted without the help of Aaron and her. You cannot do this on your own. In God's family, we will only ever win battles together. It only works when we lift each other's hands in prayer. Um, I think sometimes we can get this idea, oftentimes we can get this idea that whoever's leading the show is clearly like the, the strongest one. Um, and I suppose that's how it works in like in the quote-unquote real world. I'm getting head thinking like the leading a family these days, yeah? Feel, feeling strong? Feeling overly qualified? <laughs> now, in the kingdom of God, God typically uses the foolish and the weak to shame the so-called strong and wise. God's power is made perfect. Go ahead, just clap it. Give me the clap. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Moses wasn't given the responsibility to lead God's people because he was clearly the strongest of them all. It took those relationships those men that came around him to help him lift his hands when the burden was too great, when it was too much, when he couldn't keep his hands lifted anymore. You know what the secret weapon is? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. We've, but we've covered that. The other secret weapon, it's Jesus. It's Jesus' body. It's friendship. It's friendship. Guys, this is a revelation that I cannot get away from. God builds his family. He advances his kingdom. He empowers us to win battles through the relationships that he has blessed us with. When my brothers, just this morning, my brother Jorge came up to me and said, Simon, Pastor, I need to talk to you. Always calls me pastor. I love that. I need to talk to you. God told me that I am to pray for you and your family. Like he, he was really serious. Where you are you at, Jorge? Where'd you go? Upstairs. There's my man. He's praying right now or sleeping. And he said, I, God told me to pray for you and your family. And he mentioned couple other people in here and I was like oh my goodness like yes please guys I'm, I want to be a little vulnerable with you now so I I don't try to pretend like I I'm just the greatest leader on the planet and I've got so much experience and I've lived in all these places and I've got this degree and and therefore just just get behind me and while I lead the charge Guys, on most days, 
And of course, this is what I'm supposed to say, but, but I really mean this. On most days, I feel so utterly unqualified. I leave here most Sundays feeling like, what am I even doing? Like, honestly, I think most of it is actually demonic. It's, it's just demonic. Like these fe- overwhelming feelings and thoughts of like, like I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. Like I have nothing, nothing helpful to say. There's so many better preachers in this city. And it's just like, I'm just like bombarded with these thoughts of like, you're an idiot. You don't belong in this city. And um, it feels like the weight is, is overwhelming. And I would ask you to pray for me. And don't, don't get me wrong. Like, I don't want you to think, oh, gosh, we have the most insecure pastor in the city. Hmm. Is that a good thing? No, I'm, I'm fairly secure, I think. But I'm also very aware of the fact that without people coming around me to help me lift my hands, I am a fool to think that somehow I've got what it takes. I do not have what it takes not apart from Jesus and not apart from his body, my brothers and sisters coming around me. And the same goes for each one of you here in this room. You don't have what it takes, not alone, but in Jesus, within his family, we are strong. We are strong. When I'm weak, his power is made perfect through you for my weakness. Yeah, that's another thing as well. It's not that like, oh, I'm so weak, and so somehow like by the Spirit of God, I'm going to go like Hulk smash, and then like, you ever like kind of wish it worked that way? Like, oh, I'm so weak, Holy Spirit come, raw, like, you know, all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> it's like, no, I feel so weak, Holy Spirit come, and then David Rios comes along. I'm, well, no, we'll see what happens. Father, I feel weak. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, help my unbelief. And then along comes Josh Knapp. You thought I was ministering to you yesterday. Bro, I needed you, man. I'm like, he was like, hey, do you, got, you got a few minutes? Can we meet up? And I'm like, dude, I got a few minutes. Hope you're ready to minister to your pastor. <laughs> and you did. You were a great encouragement. The scriptures actually command us to pray for our leaders especially your pastor. I've been given the responsibility to watch over your souls. This is what Hebrews 13 says. I've been given the responsibility to watch over your souls, and it's a responsibility that I will be held accountable for by God himself. Guys, that's, that's heavy stuff. Please pray for me. Please pray for your pastor, whoever your pastor may be.